we didn't even know of the word depression other than the Great Depression. <laughs> we didn't know it was a medical condition and it's only really reflecting now. If we had thought that mum was suffering depression, it would have actually helped, right? Because you go, oh, okay, I, I kind of understand. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Craig Emerson grew up in Barradine, a town in northwestern New South Wales, on a Coonabarabra and Palaga Road. The son of an Australian World War II prisoner of war and a British nurse, he and his brother Lance endured a tough childhood. But Craig went on to serve as a senior advisor to Prime Minister Hawke and a cabinet minister in the Gillard government. He's not only brilliant, but wise. In his memoir, The Boy from Barradine, Craig writes candidly about family life, ethics, and the challenges of remaining true to yourself in the world of power. It's a raw, honest book, autobiography at its best. And it's a pleasure to be speaking with Craig today for the Good Life podcast. Thanks for joining me, Craig. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much for hosting it. And thank you to ANU, Colin, uh, to, and to everyone for coming along uh, to hear what we might have to say. So what was growing up in Baradine like? Uh, it's a hot town, uh, but also surprisingly cold in winter. I don't know if people have spent any time in northwest New South Wales, but uh, when we were little kids, the pipes would freeze on the, you know, in the plumbing. And I remember we had desert boots, uh, those suede boots, and you'd be out in the playground, and it wouldn't be until 11 o'clock that you could actually feel your toes. Uh, so. It was, you know, a, a town of extremes, but absolutely beautiful, of course, in spring um, and autumn. But it was a small town, 900 people. It now has 400 people, so it's one of those towns that's um, struggling under the new economy, if you like. It was uh, really based, a town very much based on being on the edge of the Pilliga Forest, which grows two commercial trees. Uh, one is cypress pine, so if you ever see that tongue and groove um, flooring with the knots in it, it's become quite fashionable now. Uh, but its great virtue is termites hate it. White ants hate it, so uh, it's good for housing. And the other one is uh, iron bark, which uh, now is being replaced by um, steel and concrete sleepers. But if you're out looking at a railway track, all that hard wood under the railway track is Ironbark. So, so, so we need to stick on trees for, for a moment. Then. Yeah, yeah, there's uh, a lot, lot, of, lot well, to be discussed about trees. Well before Andy Griffith, um, you built the three-storey treehouse. Yeah. Well, tell, it, us, tell us about the three-storey treehouse. It would be remiss or wrong of me, indeed, to pretend that I did it on my own. Uh, three others did it. Uh, They're all one year older than me, and they built uh, this treehouse in the creek bed of Baradine Creek. Baradine Creek itself hardly ever flowed, but when it did, it flooded, so the creek bed is very wide. Uh, and these three guys wandered up and down, up and down for days to look for a suitable big eucalyptus tree. Uh, they cut trees, which 
I think you weren't supposed to do, uh, in the forest behind pine trees and made the big beams. And then my job was to haul over on my little billy cart uh, the leftovers from the sawmill, which is the tongue and groove bits, and then they were sawn into appropriate uh, lengths, and we built the treehouse, which featured not only three storeys, but I carpeted the second storey with underfelt. Uh, we built a shower on the first floor with the <laughs> rain to be collected from the top with the corrugated roofing iron, and uh, I bought a little kerosene stove, which was obviously to do cooking, uh, particularly of top-knot top pigeons, if ever I had the good fortune to um, plug one with my slug gun, and I did twice, so I had two meals of <laughs> top-knot pigeons. <laughs> but you've, uh, you also had a, a pretty tough time growing up. You write in the book that your dad began dying in his 40s. Yeah. Uh, and that your mum was was physically abusive to both you and to, and to your brother. Yeah. Um, tell, us, tell us about some of those Well, just very briefly for Dad, he uh, was 17 during the Great Depression. Um, he got th through that okay, but he saw what real, you know, real struggles looked like, but was one of the first um, volunteers for the Second World War uh, and had actually, it was, even though they were from the city, he was at Wobbegar a little bit further into the Pilliga Forest when he enlisted, went to the Second World War, uh, was captured uh, by the Germans. They felt that they had the measure of the Italians, but when the Germans came down with all their, um, you know, incredible tanks and, mm. and uh, artillery and, and, and their um, fighter planes, uh, they routed the Australians and um, he was captured but uh, ended up in an Italian prisoner of war camp and then moved to a German prisoner of war camp when Italy capitulated. The reason I uh, say that is I think all of that is going to affect your self-confidence and so on. He was never apparently very self-confident. And I think it, it just... Um, Mum was pretty hard to get on with, to be honest, and I think he was just giving up. And he used to say to Lance and I, I won't be around for much longer which is pretty hard for little kids, you know, because we kind of felt we needed him around. Um, the way he met Mum is that uh, they allowed POWs quite a lot of liberties. They used to walk into the town in Germany and work in a, a sugar beet factory, but one of the liberties was to write letters um, to pen pals. And so they just... He got one from this nurse in London, dear POW, so she didn't know who she was writing to, he responded. Um, Mum was a Welsh nurse in a London hospital. You can imagine what she saw. Mm. They kept corresponding through the rest of the war and three weeks later they were married. And so he brought my Welsh mother uh, all the way from the green valleys of Wales to Baradine. Um, so on one of the hottest days in history. <laughs> <laughs> and... What do you think it, it was that caused your mum to, to uh, yeah. have, have a, such a sort of a soured outlook on, on life? I mean, you talk about her breaking a feather duster, hitting you and Lance. Yeah, so she was very prone to rage, really. And what was hard for us is that you couldn't, there wasn't any, any real pattern to it. So I don't know if anyone here has been in a similar situation, but... 
what's the, the hardest thing for kids is, sure, getting hit by a feather duster is no fun, but you therefore try to do everything that your mother wants you to do. But when your mother changes what you, she wants you to do and tells you to do something, you know, to um, hang the clothes out one way one week and you say, so I must always remember that, and then two weeks later you get hit because you hung the clothes out the way she said. But you would then change the way she said that you should hang your clothes out. That's really, really confusing for little kids and very, um, that's very frightening, you know, because you just think there's nothing I can do here that's going to work. And I think that's the truth of it. Um, Mum wasn't actually looking for perfection from us. It was that, and interestingly, her sister, as it turned out, talking to my cousins, was very, very similar. So I don't think it was helped by moving from the green valleys of Wales to um, a dusty town in northwest New South Wales, but there seemed to be a bit of that in the family as well. So we didn't even know of the word depression other than the Great Depression. <laughs> we didn't know it was a medical condition, and it's only really reflecting now. If we had thought that mum was suffering depression, it would have actually helped, right? Because you go, oh, OK, I, I kind of understand. One really quick story, she had tried to take her life two or three times and the doctors in Coonabarabran nearby said, you know, we think you've got a thyroid imbalance. And we were, oh, like this was, we're going to celebrate because that explains everything. It turns out she didn't have a thyroid imbalance. So, But, you know, kids kind of look for some sense, to make some sense of a situation with, which otherwise makes no sense at all. We have this story we often tell about uh, uh, family dysfunction replicating uh, down from generation yeah. to generation, but you have quite a different perspective in your book. You, you talk in your book about uh, how that childhood gave you a sense of, of real joy for yeah. then and Tom and Laura. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think um, people here would know that if you find out anything more about a father in particular who is abusive towards his children, it is very likely that that father has suffered abuse. And the only experience that they have is when the pressure's on, when there's anxiety or tension, the only thing that they've ever learned from being in their home is to hit or to be abusive or to shout at a child. Now, I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying, therefore, there's no problem. Of course there is a problem because that does go through the generations. Um, I was more fortunate in this sense. Uh, I was taught by the nuns at a little convent school in Baradance and St John's Convent School. And while that three-storey treehouse became a refuge when I was 14 and 15, when I was five, six, seven and all the way through to then uh, to primary school, that convent school was a refuge for me mm. and um, to have the nuns being so caring and about my welfare and learning you know which I got that that kind of love a love of learning was really important and I know the Catholic faith if you like has copped a deserved hammering you know with the Royal Commission and so on but when you're a little kid and you're trying to make sense of something that actually makes no sense then having a God kind of helps <laughs> explain this stuff, you know, particularly when the nuns say, the reason you're here on earth is to suffer. 
<laughs> well, it's sort of working out pretty well, isn't it? <laughs> How do you... I mean, you, you've just in that one line, Craig, encapsulated the sense that I got from the book of somebody who went through an extraordinarily disadvantaged childhood. You write about how your father, your mother and your only brother, Lance, all died in their 60s. Yeah. And yet you maintain not a sense of rage but a sense of, of optimism, of the ability to see the, the humorous side of it. What is it about you that's, that's managed to do that? Uh, well, you've studied probability theory. What's the probability of you being born? It's one in millions. Yeah. Well, I reckon you're lucky if you're born, right? And I've always thought, I won the lottery. I did. You know, like there are so many circumstances under which I would not have been born. We could spend the next three or four months discussing those. But I would not have been born if my father hadn't been recruited to go to a war, been captured in, in Greece, went to Italy, went to Germany. There's a dear pen pal thing, dear POW. They meet up, they, mar they marry, they go to Baradine, I'm born. Well, you've got to count your blessings, haven't you? I mean, <laughs> this is amazing. You've had the gift of life. And what are you going to do with the gift of life? You're going to appreciate it and you know, do your best with it. And my best has not been perfect by a very, very long way, but it's always given me a sense of optimism. And as I say in the book, and you're picking that up, now that I'm out of politics and I can reflect a bit more and I think of, you know, what are the most marvellous things that can happen to a person? And there they are. Ben, Tom and Laura just came and we arranged that. And so I've always loved them, but always loved them. But having left politics, you just had that little bit more time to think. And so I've reconnected with the natural world. As you say, I, in the introduction, I've got a PhD in economics. It's not that easy, particularly at the ANU. They're very tough markers here. But I think, what is the smartest thing, the cleverest thing that I have ever done? Ben, Tom and Laurie. How did you do that? <laughs> well, I know what caused it, but, but I'm, just, I'm just saying, like, it's just a marvellous, marvellous thing that, you know, I, and I think they are the gift of life and the gift of love. Ah. So then you come to the ANU and you're exposed to some extraordinary uh, economists of the generation. Yep. You, know, you write in the book about uh, uh, Fred Gruen, Bob Gregory, Peter War, John uh, Crawford. John Crawford, Max Corden, who told you you should just sit in your room and think. Yeah. Uh, but we don't have time to talk about any of those. Uh, what I want to focus on instead... But I will tell you what John Crawford said to me very, very quickly. You know, great economist, one of the post-World Wars, he said, just as I was being invited over to um, Senator Peter Walsh's office for an interview with Peter, right? And he said, just be very careful over there, they drink a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and like every... John was right. I, mean, <laughs> I went for the interview, I didn't sit at Peter's office, he said, come on, we'll go down to the non-members bar, we drank two bottles of Horton's White Burgundy and he said, when can you start? That was the interview. <laughs> Which sort of leads on to, uh, to another bit of uh, scallywaggery that you engaged in while you were here, the ANU Monument Climbing Club, yeah. uh, through which you climbed the Shine Dome, the Refectory 
Uh, and the Australian War Memorial. Where did you, what did you try and climb exactly on the Australian War Memorial? Uh, well, I'll, I'll just take you through the three conquests. Of course, Laura sent me a text last night and she said, where is it? And I said, at this centre. And she said, did you conquer that in the ANU Monument <laughs> Climbing Club? And I said, no, it didn't exist then. But our first conquest, it was only two members. I was president and this um, <laughs> friend of mine who was also doing his PhD, Dave Roberts, an American, was doing a PhD in science. And we thought, we'll start easy, right? Because we're going to climb all the monuments of Canberra. Why wouldn't you, if you were members of the AMU Monument Climbing Club? So we started, I don't know, what's it called? The Dome now? It's the Academy of Science, it used to be called. So we thought, this will be a pushover. So we go out at night, of course, um, and we start trying to climb up, and we just kept slipping down. And so Dave said, uh, leave it to me. A week later, he, because he's a scientist and had a lab, he created this compound which we put on our hands and our feet <laughs> and we climbed it and we thought this is it right now we, we've had a conquest and we went on to various others uh, including the war memorial where I was caught by security and they said what are you doing here and I said because I was you know fair way up and I said I'm the president of the ANU Monument Climbing Club <laughs> and he let us go <laughs> But then we did climb the Harbour Bridge before they did those big bridge climbs, you know, they, they, with all that safety gear. Were you scared going up the Harbour Bridge? Uh, terrified. Um, it's very, very tall. Like, the, the, the top, like, the, the roadway is a long way down. The top seems to be even further than to, to the water than the roadway. But our greatest fear was, because you see all this cast, you know, it's at night and it's all lit, and you said, I said to Dave, we're going to get caught because they've just got to look up and there's these two guys. And we were absolutely sure the police were at the other end, but they weren't. So um, they were our kind of most famous conquest. I did think of the Opera House one time and I sized it up. I thought, no, we've got to stop somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Dave's uh, sticky substance might not have been up to the, no, uh, no, up to the task. No, no, not the Opera House. And it was raining that night too. <laughs> So uh, then you go for uh, scaling other heights, which is to, uh, to go as a, as a young man to be a senior advisor to, uh, to Prime Minister Bob Hawke. Yeah. And you write in, in, uh, in Boy from Baradine about Hawke... Baradine. Baradine, yeah. thank you. About Hawke recalling you as a bouncing, enthusiastic bloke. Yeah. Uh, did you find that that, uh, that energetic approach to politics was one of the things that, uh, that, that opened doors? Well, it must have, and I didn't know I was a bouncing, enthusiastic bloke, but a um, very short story. The reason I was recruited to Senator Peter Walsh's office is my PhD was on the resource rent tax, and I got this incredible break to actually go and implement my PhD, because that was Labor policy, and Peter wanted to do it and he was given the responsibility. And we would go around to Bob Hawke's office periodically with Paul Keating and thrash out the details of the resource rent tax. And that's where Bob noticed me. Um, and I don't, like, I, I don't know whether I was bouncing around. I was actually pretty scared, to be honest, you know. And, um, but he, he, that went into his mind. And it was actually two years later. I worked for Peter for two years. Um, and... Um, Someone left, the trade advisor, David Buckingham, left, and um, Bob rang me up from China. And this is the China visit during which, back home, Paul Keating uh, was on a wall phone in a restaurant and said that the way we're going with the current account deficit, we're going to become a banana republic. 
And so um, uh, Bob came back and we worked very, very hard on an address to the nation and trying to stop the free fall of the currency and all that. And, and within two days of being there, so I'm his economic advisor, and um, two guys come in to meet Bob Hawke. One's Bob Brown from Tasmania and the other's Graham Richardson. And they're going in to talk about Tasmanian forests. And uh, another advisor said, who's going into that meeting? And I said, oh, I'll go in. And so I became Bob Hawke's environmental advisor that day as well. <laughs> I was bouncing around all right. And Hawke had a, a real work hard, play hard yeah. uh, philosophy. Um, the, uh, the betting, the drinking, the bawdy humour. He didn't drink. I had to do it for both of us. <laughs> uh, is that all a bit, when you look back on it now, is that all a bit sort of mad men or is there a, no, a sense some, about yeah. it of, of yeah. something that perhaps is, is too rare in politics of the ability to, to combine yeah. work and play in a, in a sort of... There, there was a purpose to it. It wasn't, let's say, an indulgence as such. And in fact, when I started, I was 31, and um, Peter Barron and Bob, Hawke, uh, Bob Hogg said, in addition to your duties, you know, and your official responsibilities, we want you to be a good mate of Bob Hawke's. And, you know, Bob had left a pretty uh, lively pre-political or pre-parliamentary career, if you like, um, and now it was just work, work, and everything was serious. Stephen Mills is here. Um, you know, like you could go nuts and you could just be absorbed with the enormity of the agenda and all the stuff that's not planned, which is about 95%. John Kerrin mm -hmm. is here too and he knows exactly what I'm talking about with Tasmanian forests and so on. So you've got, you've got two choices, just only work, become extremely stressed, perform badly or work when you're working and when you're not, come on, let's go and have some fun. And whether it be lawn bowls out uh, the House of Reps side just before question time, come on, we're going out, we're going bowling, and off we go. And I never knew which way the you know the bias was, and I think it was to the left. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we'd do that. I got the guitar out. He loved singing uh, to the to the guitar, which was good because Bob could sing and I couldn't. Um, and yeah, we just he he said to me, look. You're an economist, you know all about statistics. And I said, oh, no, a bit, not nearly as much as you do with the multiple linear regressions, honestly. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, he said, if you know about statistics, you know about probabilities and odds, and so I want you to um, be my advisor on horse racing and come along <laughs> and play blackjack with me. And I can now say to anyone here, uh, you cannot win at either horse racing or blackjack, but it can be quite fun losing. <laughs> you became very close with, uh, with Bob Hawke. He, he said at one moment that he thought of you as like a, like a son. Yeah. Uh, and refers, you, you quote the uh, uh, speech that he gave when you left the office in which he spoke about the, the love and affection from what, you, what, what you'd done. Uh, what was it about Hawke that managed to, to generate that... Uh, that real emotional connection with the people around him, because you're not the only person no. uh, who's, who speaks um, about that that real, yeah. uh, the emotional intelligence. Again, people like Stephen would, I think, confirm this. Bob's a pretty smart guy, and I think the sign of a really smart guy, and you, you do the same thing, is you're interested in ideas, right? You don't, if you're really smart, you don't pretend you know all the answers. And we would end up, 
six or eight or ten of us in a room with Hawke usually having a proposition, but then welcoming you to say something contrary mm. to it, and someone else would come in. And as a result of those discussions, might be half an hour, he would come out with a better idea. Uh, and I thought that was fantastic, and it was probably what I liked working for him most, that he didn't exercise the authority of a prime minister. He, even if someone said something that wasn't so smart, he never, never humiliated them in front of anyone else. He'd go, hmm, yeah, well, that, that's, that's a point of view, I suppose. Um, and I, I loved that. And I, I ended up in, um, we're talking about invading Fiji, thought probably on reflection it wasn't a good idea, um, with, um, uh, not seriously, but Kim Beasley did want to send a vessel in there. Um, and, and so we're doing foreign policy and everything. And I know Stephen was in on a lot of those sorts of discussions. Very fond about that. But the truth is, if you're in the Prime Minister's office for long enough, you've been through a lot together, you know? You've been through a lot of situations where most of your party room, the caucus in this case, think you're a bunch of idiots and we're going to lose the next election and then you go along and win the next election and then the next parliamentary term they think you're a bunch of idiots and you're going to lose the next election and then you win the next election and hardly anyone ever comes up and says, you know, that was pretty good, but that's life, you know, that's just the way it works. Um, so it's sort of the fact that you've all got that common purpose and you know that if it doesn't work out, you know, you're going to have everyone coming down on you like a ton of bricks does bring you closer together. You've worked pretty closely or seen up close every Australian Prime Minister from uh, Bob Hawke to Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, what are the qualities you think makes a great leader? Um, resilience, actually. I think resilience is very important. Um, following on from the discussion we've just had, um, Prime Ministers get things wrong. Um, everything's going well here and then some catastrophe occurs over there, a minister's forced to resign and so on. And I think, um, firstly, you need resilience to get there. And it's a brutal pathway. No one says, you know what, we would all like you to be Prime Minister. There are lots of other applicants for that job and you've just got to keep going and going and going. But once you're there, you've got to be able to bounce back. And this is again where the fun side of it was really important. Um, we used to get out at six o'clock in the middle of winter on the um, Royal Golf Course, Sandy Holway, Hazel, Bob and me, and they used to give me a one, because I was hopeless at golf and lots of other things, they used to give me a one-shot advantage. And so I realised at first I used to hit it to the left and hit it to the right into the bush. So when I got my shot, I would just hit it 50 metres, right? And then Hazel would put it in. We kept beating them. And Bob hated it. So he sacked me as, as his golfing <laughs> partner. But it was fun, you know? Like, and so I think being able to not take everything too seriously and just think everything is work, work, work. So resilience and that, and that balance in life. Uh, and in your approach to the job. Was there a stage when you thought you might be Prime Minister? Uh, yes, um, when I was about 21, and then <laughs> 22, 23, 24. Um, I did actually have a sort of an idea that I might like to go into politics, but Bob was very, very positive and active in saying, you know, I should do that. Um, ended up going to Queensland because Graham Richardson said, 
you'll get knocked over in a pre-selection by a 64-year-old mayor who stacked out the branches in a local electorate in New South Wales. Uh, so that's why we actually went to Queensland. I'm sorry to confess that to, the, to our three kids, but I think they did enjoy Queensland. <laughs> um, I hope so. Um, but I, you'll be surprised to hear this, but and you, you may or may not have a view. I reckon about 80% of a party room members believe that they can be Prime Minister, if not more. Now, you know, there's a lot of um, self-delusion in that, but I did think for a good time that I could, but it didn't work out, and I have no regrets because, you know, how many have we had? 40-something, 40 42 in, since Federation. Well, they're pretty, you know, rare positions and not everyone can have it. You talk about uh, the, the importance of resilience. I suppose the other side of that is, is not becoming hardened and humourless as a, as a result of the conflict. And yeah. you, you write in, in, in the book about uh, the sense during the, con the leadership conflict in Labor's final term in office that as you stepped over the, out of the ministerial car park, you were entering the combat zone. Yeah. What did you do yourself to avoid hardening up too much through that, uh, that, that internal conflict uh, among people who you admired on both sides? I went jogging. So um, very often we wouldn't get out of Parliament House, not because we were seeking to fend off the Her Majesty's opposition, we were seeking to fend off the opposition from within. And so you'd go home and, and beat, like beat, but not easy to sleep in those circumstances. And I was also the unofficial spokesperson for the Gillard government, you know, because I had gotten used to how to handle... Mm. Like I said, for example, the lead leadership speculation is not a fabrication. And I think the media kind of thought, well, this guy's worth talking to, you know. Um, so I, I got that position de facto, and I don't think I stuffed it up uh, very much. There was one incident in relation to a particular song, but... Um, <laughs> we'll come to that, don't worry. Um, but that wasn't during the leadership tensions. That was completely self-inflicted. Um, but uh, what I would do at... You get home 11, 11.30 at night, I would go jogging from um, the house that two of the three and all three have been living in, which we call Fort Courage for um, various ob obvious reasons. Sometimes there are, you know, kind of similarities with F Troop. But I'd go jogging for five kilometres when I got home, uh, jump in the shower, then get into bed, then you'd be physically tired, get up the next morning, and I, as, just, as the book says and as you've quoted, getting out of the car in the car park, you're still OK, and then the little gap, you know, the little chasm, it's only that wide, but I don't know how deep it goes in the Parliament House, and I'd look, over, look at, into the abyss and I'd say, I'm stepping into the combat zone. So you'd do that... And now it's back on again, and then off again when you step back across the chasm. Mental health. <laughs> and another form of mental health for you seemed to be to find ways of using humour to communicate. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, you did that fabulous uh, stunt on, uh, on uh, milk given to fed to humans and milk fed to cats yeah. as, uh, through the, uh, the GST. And, of course, there's the Wyala Wipeout song. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk about the cat? <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, both, but also more broadly, uh, the role of, of, of stunts and humour yeah, yeah. uh, in a good politica, political life. Well, history as written says that Paul Keating was a brutal performer in Parliament. He actually used humour. And I remember him saying, use humour. Like, 
it can be, you know, it, it's sort of far more effective than just shouting and, you know, closing your fist and so on. So Keating, you know, like, um, well, there's just so many quotes. I've, I've become quite fond of John Hewson, so I won't tell that one. But, um, <laughs> but you know, like, it, it is a very important weapon, if you like, but it's also not uncivilised. And I think in Parliament, if you're just, you know, seething at the opposition or your opponents, that's not good for the Australian public and its view of politicians. So a bit of humour, um, I think, goes a long way. The quick story about the cat and the milk is that under the new streamlined new tax system for a new century, which is just going to make everything so simple, milk for human consumption because it was food was GST free, but pet food was not. It had GST on and I, I took in a bowl, a glass and a cardboard cutout of a cat. And I said, so, if I drink this milk, it's GST free, but if I pour the milk into this saucer, into the bowl for my cat, then it attracts GST. And it was to make the point that this, this tax isn't a simple. Hmm. Um, anyway, they did exempt the cat. And uh, because uh, I think it was unenforceable, you know, they'd be in checking how much milk you gave the cat. But um, it, was to, it was to kind of say this isn't as straightforward. Uh, Wyala Wipeout, uh, we had a pledge. They said to me, we need you to go to Wyala to sort of send this thing up, you know? Like the world is not going to end. Tony Abbott had said, uh, well, if this, if this um, carbon tax comes in, Wyala will be wiped out off the face of the earth. So on the Sunday we went, and that was the 1st of July 2012, um, and we all squatted down. We had about 50 people from Wyala, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, and then zero, and nothing happened. It wasn't wiped out. And everyone jumped, you know, up in joy. And there was a Channel 7 uh, helicopter filming all of this, and it went really well. And we probably should have stopped there. <laughs> But I had got, uh, this idea had been put to me because I was just walking around the gallery on the Friday afternoon before going to Wyala and it just occurred to me, you know, Wyala wipe out there on my TV, shocking me right out of my brain. And Mark Simkin, who went on to work for the Liberals, so I blame him, um, from the ABC said, could you do that on Monday for us? And I said, oh, no, 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 it's a Skyhook song and they'll have copyright and they'll be very angry. And he said, ah, but Red Simons from Skyhooks works for the ABC. I'll get in touch with him. And on the Monday, he rang me up and he said, Red said it's fine. <laughs> so we did it. <laughs> I blame Red. But he, he stood by me because, you know, a whole lot of unwarranted criticism of my performance. But Red, in, on two occasions, went on national television and said, I think it was quite good. Do you regret doing it? <laughs> How much time have I got? Well, you can't change anything, and I do remember, though, when it appeared first, you know, I realised it was going to be on ABC, and then it was on... Very unusual for other television stations to take feed from one state. They all ran it. <laughs> and then the next morning they ran it, and then the next afternoon... I'm at a meeting in, in Darwin with Prime Minister Gillard... Um, President Cecilio Bang Bang Uniono, um, and my counterpart, Trade Minister, who was actually a very good musician and a great singer, and we're all there. Julia's very dark looking. Um, we're having started this conversation, and Gita Wirawan said, 
really enjoyed your singing, Craig. <laughs> and I wished he had never said that. <laughs> so we actually had, this is, you'll find in 20 years' time, because that's how long, isn't it, before um, cabinet submissions, and mm. there will be a recorded cabinet decision where Prime Minister Gillard forbade all of us from singing, <laughs> except, except for Peter Garrett. <laughs> uh, Craig, uh, a couple of final questions. What, what advice would you give to your teenage self? To my teenage self, uh, look, um, I, I just don't, I think I've kind of chosen the right paths, more or less. I mean, there's some you know, bad errors in my personal life and so on. Uh, I would probably more give to other teenagers, which is actually the purpose of the book, the actual purpose of the book, that if things haven't gone your way and they're pretty tough and so on, there is a path through and it's a book of hope and encouragement and power to young people to say, look, it's not necessarily the end of the road for you. And so it's so valuable, whether it's the nuns or a football coach or a teacher, you know, a good English teacher or someone who just gives you a bit... Of, I, I had no self-confidence, you know, and it's just so valuable when you get some of that and you get some support. And after a while, I think of all little kids as they're born as a flower and they can bloom and blossom, but they might need a little bit of help to come out and become a blossom. I love your observation uh, that you share with uh, Je Jeff Walsh of going through life expecting to go into another room and meet the clever people yeah. uh, and you, you, know, you go to school looking for them, you go to university looking for them, you go into the parliament looking for them and finally you realise that actually these brilliant geniuses uh, don't exist. Yeah, and, that's uh, right. Well said. Uh, so to just recount, when I was a little kid, uh, you know, I, I did get ducks of... Um, St John's Convent School, there were six of us in the class, you know. <laughs> and there were 14 in um, year uh, 10 at, at um, Baradine Central. And I thought that the other kids were at least as smart as me, and sometimes in slightly different ways. And then you go to St Pat's at Strathfield, and now there's 100 in the class, and I, I didn't do that well. I did enough to get to Sydney Uni, and you just are always waiting to meet the really, really brilliant people, you know, that you hear about and so on. And like Jeff Walsh, he was in another city apparently having the same thoughts. And in the end, it's not that we said we're the brilliant people, it's that we said, well, people are just people, you know, and they've got some abilities and strengths and whatever, and everyone has got ability. And it's a matter of maybe finding that in yourself or others finding it in you. And, uh, you know, that's what... Even at that APEC meeting in um, Russia when I was, um, stood in for Julia when her father died, there I was with Hillary Clinton, we were talking about her mother, right? Vladimir Putin, who was saying how shocked and saddened he was. Um, you know, the Hu Jintao, he wasn't so talkative, but, um, you know, all, like, you just realise these are world leaders, but they're all got their story to tell as just little kids who grew up and became world leaders. People are just people. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Gee, that's a tricky, uh, tricky one. What did I believe that I no longer believe? Ah, I, I've got the answer. 
the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost, these three blokes, they're all blokes, by the way, and they're sitting up in the sky. And that's what we were told, that there's these three blokes, God the Father, God the Son, God and the Holy Ghost. doesn't mean that I've disavowed the philosophy of Christianity, which is about, you know, helping the poor and supporting the poor. I think I've carried that through and no regrets. I think that's been fantastic for me. But the literal... Um, teachings, they're amazing. I mean, you know, there must be one or two people here that are my age, but, you know, back in those days, it was all literal. And we were actually told that if you made the sign of a cross, sign of the cross, you had 50 days indulgence, which means 50 days less time in purgatory. If you made the sign of the cross with holy water, you've got 100 days indulgence. So what do you reckon I did? <laughs> Went down to the church, stood in front of the holy water and going, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> and then after a while I thought, but what's the sentence? I mean, 100 days off what? You know, <laughs> 150 years, 1,000 years? I'm wasting my time, you know. But that, it was so literal in those days. And I think that's actually been a bit damaging to people, you know, because they, oh, I've committed a mortal sin. I, I used to go into confession, and this priest, when I was about 15, he said, have you got notes there? And I said, yes, Father. And he said, why? And I said, because if I forget one of my sins, it's another mortal sin plus none of these are forgiven. And he said, I want to see you in the refectory on Thursday. And I thought, oh, God, I'm in trouble. I go there and there's a bottle of lemonade and he said, son, just relax a bit. <laughs> and I've relaxed ever since. <laughs> when are you most happy? When I'm in the company of my beautiful children, as I am. <laughs> Thank you for coming. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, well, I got lucky. Greg Combe put me onto a, an apartment at Cremorne Point. I was looking around Marrickville, Woolloomooloo, and he said, mate, it's cheaper over here. And it's an absolutely astonishingly beautiful place and it's a reserve around it, a nature reserve. So I go running every day and I talk to the animals and to the birds, the possums, the lizards, you know. I call the brush turkeys Chook. Hello, Chook. Hello, Chook. We've got <laughs> lorikeets that come in through the bathroom window, an old Beatles song. But, you know, it's just reconnecting with nature. When you're a little kid in a country town, you see a lot of nature all around you. And now I've got that joy. And again, you know, that it's just a joy. And, and, and we, I think as humans, walk past this every day. We walk past the birds in the evening as they come back from where they've been eating, you know, and foraging. And it's like they've all just chatted about, how was your day? Oh, I've got some really good seeds and nuts and stuff. It was fantastic. <laughs> and, and one day we'll understand some of that language. We will. We're already starting to do that. And finally, Craig, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, these three. Mainly Laura. Mainly Laura. Oh, and Ben and Tom too. <laughs> Uh, no, honestly, have... because, I mean, as young people, as they've grown up, and we're just talking about the natural world and all that, they love it, they, they talk about it all the time, and they behave ethically, they think ethically, they're decent towards each other and to other people. And so, you know, it's not just a matter of kids learning from 
parents, it's very much parents learning from kids. You know that old Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young song, and I promise not to sing it, but um, <laughs> teach your children well in the second verse is teach your parents well, their children's hell will slowly go by. Feed them on your dreams, the one they picks, the one they'll know by. And the last is, don't you ever ask them why. If they told you, you would cry. Suggest look at them and sigh and know they love you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.